This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the best of First Up for Tuesday the 15th of June. Call Katrina Bat and Aho. In the pod today, a formal apology half a century in the making. Co-founder of the Black Panthers, Will Ilulahia, says he wants an amnesty for overstayers as well as the government's apology for the dawn raids of the 1970s. Why Rotorua Council CEO needs so many deputies, a rare houseplant sells online for 27 grand, and we catch up with trampolinist Dylan Schmidt before he bounces off to the Olympics. But first, the new Netflix series Sweet Tooth is currently the number one show on the world's largest streaming service in most places around the world. Produced by movie star Robert Downey Jr. and his wife Susan, Sweet Tooth was filmed in New Zealand during 2020. Our host Nathan Rarere asked one of the show's Kiwi stars, actor Jodie Rimmer, how it felt being in a programme doing so incredibly well. It's really weird. (laughs) You know, I'm not used to great success. It's weird because we still don't really know if we're going to do a second series. It hasn't been confirmed. You would assume with those numbers it's looking pretty good, but actors are a superstitious bunch because we never really know when the next gig is. So many factors can come and change things, and even though it's number one all around the world, which is kind of really unbelievable, I still just don't get excited because you just don't know. And my character is, I can say this, alive at the end of the series. Yes. And everyone says to me, oh, you no, you're sure, surely you'll be in the next one. But you just don't know. <laughs> well, we should explain it to people. It's a bit like a, I guess, do you call it post-apocalyptic? I mean, it's quite yeah. incredible that this story was invented a few years ago about yeah. what, imagine if there's a massive virus that just <laughs> arrives and you know, wipes out a whole lot of people and they have to get around in quarantines and things like those. And And then it all just happens to come true, apart from the bit with hybrid human-animal people being born. That's the other part that gets there. But it was filmed in New Zealand. Like, How long after lockdown last year did you start shooting? The pilot was filmed a couple of years ago in, in New Zealand, and they had a great time. It was based on a DC comic. And they filmed the pilot and then lockdown happened across the world and in New Zealand as soon as it lifted, filming began. So there was a bit of a time between the first episode that you see and the second. But it actually works for the story because the main character, Gus, who's half human and half deer, ages a bit. So, yeah, look, the special effects department, they're all, you know, it's all New Zealand crew a handful of Kiwi actors, but mainly American, a South African guy. It's, it's quite a, a, a rainbow uh, community in terms of who you see from which country turn up on screen. But in terms of the crew, it's heavily, heavily Kiwi, along with one of our great directors, Tor Fraser. And this is when people go, oh, why do they give subsidies for these things that are going on just so a few actors can get paid? Just give people an idea of the crew that's involved. And I'm going yeah. right down here to catering, to grips, to best boys, to everything. Like, what, what, yeah. About how many people work on one of these productions? Oh, it's hundreds of people. And I think this is what people don't understand. It, it's very much about the crews. All of the extras would be Kiwi. But yeah, it's, these jobs are sought after by people all over the world. And they are landing in our backyard right now. So it's amazing. New Zealand looks amazing. 
it's incredible for our country, but the crews have been amazing and they love to come and work here because our crews are so great to work with and we do such a damn good job. You mentioned there about New Zealand looking amazing and what was fun is, uh, you know, it's set in, what, originally Yellowstone Park is what we've got mm. here and you have a look and, and I was watching with my daughter and she's like, that's one of our ferns though. That's that <laughs> over there that looks like the forest out there and trying to pick where it is and then there's even a wonderful mm. scene uh, with one of the actors sitting in her office and I'm looking over her shoulder I'm like, oh, that's that building in Auckland. Oh, so is that one in Auckland as well. So it's a, it must be, that must be what it's like to be a person from Los Angeles watching basically every other movie, right? Yeah, and I think it's happening less now because stuff has been shot down here and in Australia a lot. And we just have to make hay while the sun shines because right now it seems to be happening a bit. <laughs> Tell me about your character, not too much. So I turn up in the last two episodes. There's only eight episodes in series one. So I rock up in episode seven and I'm quite integral to the story because our three main characters are, are on a mission trying to find some information for the whole first series. And I hold some really big information. But what is fun, though, Nathan, is they had to, uh, I got to be aged. So, well, when I say aged, they wanted me to be 10 years different. So they they made me look 10 years younger with, like, extensions and nice hair. And I'm a scientist, I can say that much. And then 10 years, then I, they aged me 10 years with this wild, crazy sort of Melissa Etheridge look, crazy big black wig with a grey striped down the front and I hadn't seen humans for 10 years, my character. So I am quite raw and I've been making a lot of blueberry wine out the back of my house post-apocalypse. <laughs> post so yeah, I'm a little, a little rough around the edges, you could say. That was Jodie Rimmer, who stars in the new Netflix series Sweet Tooth, which is number one in most markets serviced by the streaming giant. This week on Trade Me's interesting auction list is a fantastically retro 1949 Talbot car, one of the only examples in Australasia, and the opportunity for a coaching session for you and some friends with newly retired black cap BJ Watling. But first, yet another record price for a houseplant. Trade Me's Ruby Topsand tells producer Jeremy Parkinson that someone's just dropped $27,000 on a pot plant. Yes, you heard that correctly. Over the weekend, it looks like we've got a, a new record for the most expensive houseplant ever sold on site. And, and quite a record, yep, $27,100 on a variegated minima. There was a bit of a heated bidding war going on in the final moments of the auction. The listing ultimately got over 100,000 views, had more than 1,600 watch lists. So it got a lot of attention and, yeah, it's quite an outcome to match. We've had plenty of these plants featured on this segment over the last couple of years, but it seems to have just got so much bigger. I know, there is no limit. The limit does not exist here. They just get, you know, you think you think that something is absurd and then somebody else bids double it on a different plant. So who knows? So the rarity is in that it is sort of half the leaf is kind of a creamy colour and the other half has got that green deal going on. Do people buy these and then make cuttings from them and then like make a living out of selling them on Trade Me or something? Because I certainly would. So yes, yeah, so the variegation, that, that multicoloured feature of the plant is what is behind them selling uh, for so much. From what I understand, though, you're not actually guaranteed to, when you propagate the plant to have that variegation remain, and it's babies. <laughs> so it's like, I, I mean, look, 
you assume that people spending this much money on plants know what they're doing and, and know the risks, but potentially they will, yeah, propagate it and, and make lots of others. But I think a lot of them just really love houseplants too, and and there's like that, you know, people people will fork out sort of things they love and. And houseplants seem to be more growing, kind of a growing trend. And, and that's just that, that demand pushes prices up. Well, there you go, crazy. And for the price of around nine of these variegated minimas, you can get yourself a 1945 Talbot Largo T26 T26. T26, it says on the listing. $200,000. This is a cool looking car. It's like totally, you know, it's got that whole Art Deco thing going on. Huge flares and the running boards. Yeah, so the Tobal Lagos have become like a, quite a top-prized car at various auctions over the last few years, so getting quite a lot of noise that this one's on site. People are really excited about it. And one of only 750 of these cars in particular that were ever produced. So there's some speculation in the listing description that there's potentially four others in Australia, but that this is the only one in New Zealand for sure. And yeah, it's a it's a real beauty. It's that kind of sage green color, which is really interesting, at both inter- on the interior and exterior, with some beautiful woodwork. And yeah, just that the photos are really beautiful too. It's photographed in an incredible outside of some kind of castle setup. So, yeah, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't look like a, a 1940s going into 1950s car. It's certainly got that 1935 feel to it. Mm. It's just beautiful. Mm, indeed. Yes, and uh, our last auction today is a, a private one-hour coaching session with Black Cat BJ Watling. All proceeds going to the Starters Foundation. That's right. So the recently retired Watling is giving up some of his time to hang out with some fans for an hour. It's suitable for an individual small group, according to the listing, although they do have to be flexible with timings because BJ is a busy man. But the session will be held in Hamilton with all proceeds going to the Studders Foundation, as you said, which is an organisation set up to provide clothing and stationery for kids starting out at schools in the Waikato region. So, yeah, this one's currently sitting at 4.05 because of the 8 tonight, Tuesday night, and 19 bids so far. We'll be interested to see if this one climbs up because it does have 83 watch lists. That was Trade Me's Ruby Topsand. A co-founder of the Polynesian Panthers says the government should allow overstayers to remain in New Zealand when it formally apologises for the dawn raids later this month. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern will apologise on behalf of the state at a commemoration event in the Auckland Town Hall on the 26th of June. Our producer Matthew Tunison discussed the announcement with activist Will Ilulahia, who says it's not enough for the government to just apologise. But he started by explaining his role in opposing the devastating raids back in the 1970s. Well, I was chairman of the Polynesian Panther Party and we were already in existence for four or five years. And the community were coming up and asking us what we're going to do about it because basically it was affecting a lot of people in the community. And so uh, we ended up uh, responding to their call and we had a group called the Military Wing and we put an end to it by dawn raiding the ministers themselves. How did that go down, Will? It was hard because most of us were in the Military Wing that we put our life on the line because we knew we were breaking the law. But uh, at the same time, thanks to the Balangi Islanders on the, on the Hauraki, they were going through their own struggle about getting, um, you know, uh, private radio. And we got one of the ministers being interviewed live on air who said, how dare these people come at this ungodly hour? Yeah, certain irony there, eh? 
Yes. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I mean, people in the community, Auckland's Pacific Island community, really suffered as a result of this, didn't they? Yes, we did. And, you know, and the irony of the whole thing was that the majority of overstays at that time were were Balangis, you know, were Pakis. But you know, the governments of the day. I think what's relevant with the apology that it's done by the government that actually brought it out it was Labour Party that actually started the dawn raids. Muldoon just took it to the next level to use the issue to try and get get him in government, and it, it worked. Yeah, and we're we're getting close to fifty years since this all happened, but it's pretty clear that these these lasting scars and and hurt, isn't there? Yeah, and we're sort of saying that just saying sorry is not enough. There should be some compensation, and uh, basically what we're offering to the government is to provide pathways to residency for those people that are overstaying presently. I mean, these people are paying tax. These people are providing resources for our country, and it's not good to see them, you know, hiding away in the corner and that kind of stuff. So it's still going on. But, you know, with this apology, hopefully this could be the end of part of our history that's uh, the dark side of, the, of life, you know? I heard Alpita William Seal referred to Jerome Kano uh, and said that his father was an overstayer. So, you know, that's <laughs> that's the, the contribution that overstayers can make to our country. John, along with parents were overstays at the beginning. Is that right? You know, we've got people now who are actually high up in the New Zealand government and, and public sector whose parents were overstayers. And they've contributed. I mean, we have present overstayers who are actually paying tax. Yeah. But they can't get decent jobs because of, you know, because they haven't got the paper to, for them to get the jobs. I mean, we were, we were crying out about trying to help the horticulture industry uh, recently because we couldn't get uh, pickers coming in. We had about 10 to 11,000 11, people in here already. You know, I've, I've got cases of overstayers who've been working on the farm for 15, 16 years, less than the, than the minimum wage. Really, and the fa- and the farmer knows that this guy's a good worker or she's a good good worker, but you know, and they know that the, the workers won't top them off or whatever, being uh, low wages, because you know they're just so happy to get something in, on their book. Because like everybody else here, they've got to pay their rent, they've got to pay you know, pay the school fees, they've got to you know get some job and that kind of stuff. We shouldn't be having this in Aotearoa. Maybe a third world country on it, but not in Aotearoa. Hmm. Last thing I want to ask you, Will, if this occasion is tinged with some sadness given a lot of people who suffered as a result of the dawn raids won't be around to witness this policy. I'm thinking of Amanes, the former Polynesian panther in particular. Yeah, you know, we've got our 50th coming up on Wednesday. For us, it's appropriate probably that, that you know, this has been done on our 50th and there's been a lot of our members who actually fought for this to be done, and finally, 50 years later, it's done. 50 years, mate. 50 years. Does it come with a sense of relief, or, or, or what are you feeling? For, for me, personally, it's come as a sense of, finally, finally it's been done in the 21st century, that we can have this history, and it was a, it was a dark history of our nation, dawn raids. Finally, now we can stamp it with a end of story. Mm-hmm. The end. We don't want to see this done again. That was Polynesian Panthers co-founder Will Ilulahia. Love
Love is like a trampoline for New Zealand's only representative at the Olympics in the trampoline, Dylan Schmidt. The 24-year-old competed at the Rio Games where he placed seventh and he's definitely hoping for a podium finish in Tokyo. As part of our first up series of interviews with Olympic athletes, Nathan caught up with Dylan who told him his trampolining origin story which didn't start in the way you'd think. Yeah, never did gymnastics. A lot of people think I did. I just did trampolining, yeah, from a young age. Um, obviously started in the backyard and then, and then started going to a club. So, yeah, this, that's been my sport since I was five years old. And I did lots of other sports, obviously, as a kid, but yeah, this is the one that stuck. So how does it become, though, that one, right? I'm, going, I'm in the backyard here. Was it, did did the parents see you do, like, a double flip or a something? What was the bit that was like, hang on, we're going we're to get Dylan to a club? I think it was more, they were worried I was going to hurt myself, I'd say. Um <laughs> <laughs> Probably, um, yeah, just heard myself on the backyard trampoline and then maybe they were like, oh, we need to take him to a club so we can learn how to do it properly. So, yeah, learn how to do it properly and then and yeah, just from there progressed to going to competitions, went overseas, did quite well and then, and then yeah, obviously came to my attention that it was an Olympic sport and that sort of stuck and that's what I wanted to do. So when you say do it properly, like what are the things, you know, from the normal person to have a bit of a bounce on a tramp, what is it that's, that, that is a proper thing? Is this like learning how to bounce higher and stuff? Yeah, I guess there's these technique with everything, every sport, you know, there's technique, there's um, a, a way to do things, there's skills to learn, progressions and, and that sort of thing and, and, and routines you have to do in competitions. So it's really just doing the sport and trying to get better and trying to improve on what the judges are looking for and, and how you get scored. Obviously, when you're five years old, you're, you're not really focusing too much on that. No, probably not. You're still doing it for fun. But as you get older and you start to compete overseas and, and start to figure out what why scores are better for some people. Uh, yeah, you just work on those things and then get better at it. So as it, this is good, Dylan, because you're helping me understand this. So as I try to understand it, I have a look and see if I've got this right. So it seems like, what, do you do two routines that are scored and one of them seems to be it's got it's got to have some particular moves in it where the other one is completely freestyle or have I, have I got that totally wrong? Like, How does it work? What are they looking for? Yeah, sort of. So we do do two routines. But there's, there's not there's no set skills in the set routine. It used to be, but uh, we still call it the set routine. Uh, well, we do anyway. But yeah, it's just a, a little bit easier. The routine's not quite as hard. There's only four skills that count for difficulty, and it's really focused on on height and time and execution and that sort of thing. And then the second routine is yeah, as you said, the freestyle one. So it's ten skills that count for difficulty, and it's basically our hardest routine that we can do as well as we can. So then that's the preliminary round, and then the finals is just the hard routine again. Right. Talk me through this. So let's just go, I can bounce. Because you bounce incredibly high. Like, it's ridiculous how high you are. Honestly, you're like, you're going over two or three-story buildings, it looks like, when you're doing it. When you do, let's just say, a, a forward flip, which even in the audience could, could get a grip on, is the would I score higher if I managed to be uh, have my flip done further up in the air, if you know what I mean? So when I come down, I'm landing straight? Or is it better to have landed it just before you, you, you hit the trampoline? Like what, what do the judges look for in something like that? They, they look for a kick out, basically. So if you get out of the skill, because there's shapes in, in each skill, so tuck, pike and straight. And so for the tuck and pike, if, yeah, if you're getting out early and, and holding a line and, and, and kicking out before 12 o'clock, we say like on, on a clock, then they won't give you any deductions. So yeah, I guess you are trying to get the skill done as soon as you can in, 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 the, in the skill and then so you have that nice floaty sort of line after the skill. If it's rushed and you're trying to finish the skill too late, then yeah, you need to be finished your twist and your kick out before yeah, basically 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock.
Right. Now, the trampolines you use in competition are very different to the normal backyard one that people have. Like, you don't have that little cage around the side. It doesn't blow away in higher winds. So that's pretty good. How long will it take you to get used to a, a trampoline that you've never jumped on before? Because I imagine they've all got a little bit of nuance, you know, in the feel of them. Yeah, exactly. You know, they're all, all different. They, they should be all the same. Uh, you know, they're all made up of the same things. But yeah, as you said, there's, there's definitely little nuances to every single individual trampoline. It doesn't take too long to get used to it. You know, a few sessions, maybe a day or two, um, depending on the tramp. And, and usually, I like newer tramps, so when you go to a competition, the tramps are new, so it's not a bad thing. You know, we can't really afford to have a new tramp mm. every week at home. So, uh, yeah, definitely they're a lot nicer to jump on when they're new. So, yeah, you generally go to competitions as... Um, Nice. Did you ever do the one, you know, the one off the garage roof onto the tramp forward flip into the pool? Did you ever try that one? Oh, yeah, I did a little bit of that at home when I was younger. I bet it yeah. looked awesome. I bet you nailed it. It was pretty there as well. Yeah. So, so seventh in 2016, which is pretty cool. The aim this year, try, try and what? Try and hit the, you know, the podium? Yeah, but definitely. I mean, I'm, 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 there, to, I'm there to win, obviously. Uh, that's, what I, that's why I do it. But yeah, I mean, podium would be awesome. But I'm just going to really go out there and, yeah, I've been training, training really well, training hard. So, yeah, just see what happens, but definitely want to win when I get when I get there. That's Olympic medal hopeful Dylan Schmidt. How many deputies does the boss of the Rotorua Lakes Council need? Well, it appears one or even two isn't enough. Seven senior staff at the council can all claim the title. To explain why, how, and what, Nathan spoke with Rotorua's local democracy reporter Felix Demare. How can seven people share the same job title? Well, I suppose if you print it on enough um, business cards, then you can have seven or ten or hundred. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I just noticed it came up on a couple of email signatures uh, coming from the council, and so I asked some questions about it. And turns out they've done an organisational realignment, is what they call it, and um, they're trying to align the chief executive, the deputy chief executives with outcomes rather than functions by the sound of it. Right. So do the seven people all have different skills then? Well, I haven't personally seen all of their resumes, but I guess the, the council would say, yes, they do, and, and those skills can be applied to the particular areas of outcome, um, such as organisational enablement uh, and infrastructure and environmental solutions. So they're, they're trying to uh, combat the issues of the day. You know, smaller government is a thing that gets mentioned plenty of times when people say we need it to cost less. I mean, is is this a much more expensive, you know, is it, is it a very expensive structure? Well, um, in terms of the, the process itself, I haven't actually got a clear answer on that yet. So I did ask the council, how much has this process cost so far and how much is it expected to cost as well? Um, and they are processing that question as a uh, official information request. So I won't won't hear back on that for a little while yet, but um, in terms of uh, salary raises, there is one salary raise, and that one person is now in the twenty thousand, sorry, two hundred thousand to nearly two hundred eighty thousand uh, salary bracket, um, and that that person's had a, a pay rise of about forty thousand dollars minimum. There's there's a whole lot of faces in here. I can tell you, everyone's going. Wait, wait, these jobs. How do we get them? I can wear a suit, Felix. You should see me. I, I sit at a board table. I can nod. I bet you look great. Yeah, heck yeah, that's very good. Hey, um, <laughs> so you, it's, you've spoken to a former mayor uh, mm. about this. I understand. What was the reaction there? 
Yes, I spoke to um, Graham Hall, who was the mayor of Rotorua from 1992 to 2004, um, and he, uh, he, he didn't mince his words, to be honest. He said it's unbelievable and laughable and what he calls corporate creep, uh, in his opinion. So um, he says it's hard to imagine that the name changes uh, will improve output because for five out of these seven people, their jobs haven't actually changed. Wow. Uh, Graham Hall, good Rotarian there. Um, do you know if any other councils around the country have this many deputies? Yeah, I had a bit of a, a look around. I haven't checked all of them because there's a fair few, but mm. um, Tauranga City Council across the hill there, um, they don't have a deputy chief executive, but they do have six GMs. Not sure if that's general manager or group manager. Um, so that's similar to the structure that Rotorua Lakes Council had before. Uh, and then over at Western Bay of Plenty District Council, they do have one deputy chief executive, um, but that deputy chief, chief executive is also a group manager. As you go around and speak to experts, what, what do they say, You know these people from the sector? Yeah, I had a, I had a chat to um, Dr Andy Asquith, uh, who's a local government expert at Massey, um, and his his choice quote was that there seems to be a detachment from reality somewhere here. That's what he said. So he wasn't pulling his punches either. Um, and he, he was also saying that he's not necessarily against well-paid public service jobs, but said a pay bump of of that size deserves to be scrutinised. That's Rotorua's local democracy reporter Felix Demare. Thanks for listening to the best of First Up. Matewa.